ready? Born ready. It's here, another episode of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Saba Long. If this is your first episode, welcome. If you are a regular, welcome back. Thank you for rocking with us. Today's show is going to be a bit on the shorter side because last week's show was a little bit longer, so we're going to try to balance it out a a little bit. And to the ladies... Fellow ladies, happy Women's History Month. March is Women's History Month. Plus, if you're listening to this on Tuesday when we release, today is International Women's Day. Who runs the world? Where's my Beyonce sound? (laughs) All right, right, so uh, let's start, as we usually do, talking about what's happening locally. So in Atlanta... We've been talking about housing um, probably like every other episode, I think. So a lot is happening in the housing world that you guys should be paying attention to. So last week, the Atlanta Regional Commission, that's the organization that works with local governments on big topics like housing and transportation and elderly kind of aging in place type stuff. They released some data that confirms what you and I already know and feel and hear. Over the past five years, Metro Atlanta lost nearly 60,000 housing units that were renting for less than $1,250 a month. 60,000. And the average price of a home sold in Metro Atlanta has increased by $82,000 since 2017. Good grief. Yeah, but (laughs) the number of tenants... Uh, who identified as extremely cost burdened, which means that they're spending at least half of their income on rent, is about 28,000 people in Atlanta. And there's about that number in the 11 county region is about 148,000 people. So across the 11 county metro Atlanta region, 148,000 people are spending at least half of their income just on housing. Uh, but half of, that's not even including transportation costs. We know how much gas is nowadays. So just imagine that's probably like 65% of their income just on housing and transportation, which is really wild. Uh, so in the city of Atlanta, the actual city, Mayor Andre Dickens says that he wants to produce 20,000 affordable housing units over eight years. Now, that number might sound familiar because Keisha Lance Bottoms, former mayor, had that same goal. In the four years that she was mayor, they did about 8,000 units. Uh, and and by the way, the 20,000 units, those are either current units preserved at affordable or new units. So it's not only new units. That's just a, an interesting thing to point out there. Now, I think I mentioned this before on a previous episode Atlanta Housing, the Atlanta Housing Authority, has a backlog right now today of 24,000 people on their waiting list. So 20,000 units for affordable housing doesn't even get to 
the entirety of the current wait list just for the Atlanta Housing Authority. Completely separate from the person that's trying to rent a one-bedroom apartment for $1,250. So, uh, the mayor's office is hiring a chief housing officer. That role has been vacant since the end of 2020. Um, there's a lot, though there's obviously a lot of movement that's going to happen around housing. The thing that I am paying particular uh, interest in and what we've been writing a lot about over at Atlanta Civic Circle is the sense of urgency and kind of framing, okay, let's assume that the mayor is able to reach his goal of 20000 over eight years. Is that actually enough, right? So what is Atlanta going to look like 15, 20 years from now? As we know, more people are moving in. We know there's going to continue to be a, a problem around equity and access. You got folks who are, we already see that people are moving further and further away from denser areas because those areas are becoming too expensive to live in. So you really have a question about what does the future of Atlanta look like? How soon before we become San Francisco, New York, cities that are just incredibly expensive to live in? And the last part of that is uh, wages are not matching the increase in the cost of living. Okay, so another kind of in the same vein, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago about Forest Cove. So this is a housing complex that's set to be demolished soon uh, and is supposed to be rebuilt. So Mayor Andre Dickens said that the city is working really hard to find new temporary housing for the about 200 and something odd families that are living in Forest Cove. Uh, but the kicker is the housing could be up to 10 miles away, which is pretty big, right? We're taping uh, in Adair Park. And so uh, 10 miles from Adair Park is what, Keith? Like Buckhead further? I think Buckhead might be even further than 10 miles. So that's a that's a very big difference as far as where those families are going to be able to stay and, and being close to their other people they know. Will they be able to stay? I'm hoping they'll be able to stay actually in the city. Uh, but a 10-mile radius is very far. Uh, so the latest Forest Cove rather saga is that the APS Elementary School in the area, they are now going to temporarily shut down at the end of the school year because... 90% of the kids that are going to that school, this is Thomasville Heights, they live in the Forest Cove community. And so the other 10% of the kids are just going to have to, like everyone's going to have to find, they're going to be sent to another school uh, while Forest Cove gets rebuilt. And then let's think about how long is it actually going to take to completely raise a, a, a current property and then build brand new housing. That's what, a year, two years on the, you know, pretty aggressive side. And so what's going to happen to these elementary kids, to their families, uh, that they are going to, their lives are going to be upended for at least two years that we know of. And that's just, uh, it's just a really unfortunate, heartbreaking story. Um, and it's a real example of how when you are in power, you really need to be mindful, and I don't mean just elected officials. This is also on the private sector side. Really mindful of the decisions you make and how they impact entire communities, not just one family, one person, entire communities. Next up, we've got 
Cobb Transit. So last week I was on the WABE political podcast. It's called Political Breakfast. And I had the opportunity to interview uh, Lisa Cupid. She's the chairwoman of the Cobb County Board of Commissioners. She, by the way, is the first African-American and Democratic chairwoman of the Cobb County Commissioners. So one of the things we talked about is a potential referendum that'll be on the ballot in November of this year uh, for Cobb County to up their sales tax by a penny and fund 30 years of transit projects. Now, this isn't final, uh, but it's moving, inching, maybe I should say, crawling <laughs> towards reality. Uh, now, this isn't the first time the commission has tried to do this. This is actually the third time, or they've tried this three times, I should say. Uh, but this is the first time with Democratic leadership at the helm. There are, uh, There's a kind of transit advocacy grassroots uh, group called Cobb 4 Transit. They have been pushing this and really trying to get Cobb County and the commission um, and the residents to think about what do we want the future of Cobb County to look like. Uh, Cobb is becoming an increasing, um, it's a suburban county, yes, but it has very dense city-like uh, pockets, right? Think of Smyrna, Vinings, Marietta, um, and they also, by the way, have a big cityhood movement going on. Three, four cityhood movements, but three of them I think are going to pass. The one that's actually supposed to be a black city, that's the one that may not get through this session. Just a, an aside on Cobb. All right, so moving to Georgia politics. Um, well, this is a big week. It is qualifying week, so that means that we'll know at the end of this week who is putting their money where their mouth is and actually paying the qualifying fee to run for public office. Why does this matter? You can kind of say what we've all seen so far is a bit of a trial balloon, right? So folks have tried to put forth their campaign plans, raise money. Um, and really this is the week where the rubber hits the road and they can say, all right, I think I've got a viable shot at getting through the primary and then on to the general. Um, just as an example, Vernon Jones, we all know he said he was going to run for governor. And then a few weeks ago he switched and said, nope, I'm going to run for Congress instead. Uh, so we'll see if others end up doing that. Um, if they decide, nope, I'm not going to run or I'm not going to run for reelection. That could be another thing. Um, so, by the way, last week, a judge rolled, uh, ruled that the state's redistricting maps, the new maps, will go forward. Now, this is a big deal because a number of organizations, including the ACLU of Georgia and the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, filed lawsuits on the grounds that Georgia's new maps were disenfranchising black voters. And they allege that there should be about six additional black districts, uh, but the way these maps were drawn, those districts do not exist. And so the judge basically said, you're right, uh, these maps do disenfranchise voters, but there's not enough time to redraw new maps and get that information over to the county, uh, the county elections offices, right? So remember, the primary is in May. And this was just basically um, Republicans just ran ran out the time, right? Ran out the clock, uh, which was 
really smart. Uh, you got to give him credit. Like it was a smart thing to do. Was it the right thing to do? That's another question. But was it, it was a very smart thing to do. So they couldn't just, if the judge said that's wrong, they couldn't just keep the old maps? No, because the okay. maps, the governor had already signed off on these maps. Now, what the judge could have done is court-ordered maps. But I think because this is so politicized, I think the judge just opted to let's keep the case open. They're going to try this in 2023, and the new maps will go forward for this year. Uh, but the conversation isn't dead. But it does obviously have a significant impact. It's kind of like, yeah, I know you stole from me, but maybe I can get some of the money back in the future. I don't know. This is a peculiar thing. Um, so we'll see what happens. You know, this is the, this is why a lot of folks have pushed for redistricting and redrawing maps to not be partisan, right? To have a nonpartisan folks doing it because both parties do this, right? When Democrats get in office, they redraw maps in their favor. When Republicans get in office, they redraw maps for the, in their favor. And at the end of the day, the folks who are really harmed in all this are black voters. So, um, another thing happening in this, in the general assembly, there's been a lot of work over a few years now to bring casinos, sports betting, and horse racing to Georgia. That's getting slightly closer to reality. At least horse racing is, uh, there's a bill in process that would make horse racing legal but Georgians would have to approve a constitutional amendment making that so. There's a state senator from Statesboro who owns and races horses in other states who's part of the folks who's pushing this bill. He also commissioned a study by Georgia Southern to see what the economic benefit could be to Georgia if, this, if horse racing does indeed happen. And so uh, the study says that this is just over a billion dollar industry, uh, and it would create more than 8,500 jobs. Now, uh, the bill would also require, if this actually goes through, the racetracks would pay the state a tax on all bets. So that tax is only 3.75% of all bets, which seems kind of reasonable. If you think about like how much they're taxing, like you know, in other states, how much they're taxing marijuana use, right? Marijuana is legal. It's certainly not as low as 3.75%. Um, so there's also a mobile sports betting bill on the table. Uh, and that money, the state says, would go to fund education. Um, you know, you've got Hope Scholarship that it's not covering the full amount for education. So today, the day we release this podcast is Crossover Day. So this is the day we'll find out for sure kind of where these bills are headed. If they pass um, and, and pass at least one chamber, and then we'll see if they um, pass on the uh, on signy die the, the last day of, uh, of the session. To national State of the Union was last week. Did you watch the address? Uh, President Biden delivered one of the shorter speeches we've seen in a while, actually. Um, he led very strongly and received applause from both uh, parties 
on talking about Ukraine and Russia. Um, so that was a, a smart move for him. He also got a bit of a boost in public opinion polls after the speech. So I think uh, Democrats feel that this was a win. He came across as strong. No one or strong for Biden. I, I think the bar is relatively low on Biden's ability to deliver um, a compelling speech. And so it's he just needed to go there, do that, kind of show strength. And I think he was he was able to do that. And that's why the public opinion poll showed it. Um, another thing he did, which is relevant to Georgia listeners, he gave credit to two Georgia politicians who were backing a bill to limit the price of insulin to $35 a month. Who were those Georgia politicians? Well, they both have very tough elections this year. Senator Raphael Warnock and Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Both of them have sponsored uh, this bill in the Senate and the House. And this was already an initiative of the president as part of the Build Back Better plan. And then actually before that, it was also an initiative of Trump, but it just has not happened yet. So why is this a big deal? Why did Trump and Biden, now Biden, trying to push this through? So the American Diabetes Association estimates that diabetes accounts for a dollar of every four dollars in healthcare costs in the United States. That is insane. Insanely high. Um, so that's why you've got Warnock and Lucy McBath pushing that through. Uh, another thing Biden did during the State of the Union that raised some eyebrows, I think, at least for super progressive folks, is he emphatically came out against uh, defund the police. And he said it, I don't know, I didn't count, but it felt like it was like six or seven times uh, that he was like, we do not believe in defund the police. Um, and so you can clearly tell that there's a midterm election and Democrats are trying to do everything they can uh, to hold on to those seats and even try to gain some seats. Now, was it the right thing to do? I think if you look at the polls, probably so, because uh, folks generally don't agree with the notion of defund the police, but they do agree with reallocating resources for things like mental health support, uh, having um, people who show up to an incident who are not armed, who are there to help and, and try to talk, you know, it's almost like hostage negotiation where you're trying to talk the person down from doing something or, or um, you know, harming themselves or harming someone else. Um, and the police officer may not always be the right person, or it could be a police officer, but that's what they're trained to do, to de-escalate situations. And so I think, um, you know, I get that it was a controversial thing, but ultimately it was probably the right thing to do. Because it gives Republicans one less thing to hit Democrats on in the midterm elections. So one thing Joe Biden did not talk about at the State of the Union was student loans. So the federal student loan debt has been suspended during the pandemic, but it's supposed to restart May 2nd. Now, the Biden administration is looking at extending it, extending this freeze for a little bit longer they haven't said how long that would be, though. Um, and there's no promises on if this is actually going to happen, but they're starting to have the conversations. 
So they haven't made up their mind, but there has been a lot of pressure, particularly from the progressive wing of the party for the administration to do something about student loan debt. And in fact, there is a push for them to completely eliminate federal student loan debt altogether. Now, I mentioned before that Biden actually campaigned on eliminating $10,000 of student debt per person. But now he's saying he doesn't want to do it by executive order and he wants congressional approval, which means this would be a bipartisan effort. Don't hold your breath on that one. Don't hold your breath. Now, if you are a male, I think you will find this next topic kind of interesting. Um, Florida Republicans are trying to ban abortions at 15 weeks. Now, Democrats tried to respond to that by implementing or by writing some amendments to the legislation that says, well, if we're going to do a 15-week ban on abortions, the father of that child is going to have to start paying child support as soon as the woman reaches the 15-week mark. <gasps> yep. Um, it, now, it would also, the bill would also include health care uh, for the woman and the child. There were a few other amendments that were pushed as being pro-woman, pro-family. Um, and so it kind of pushes back on the Republican narrative that, you know, we don't believe in abortion. Okay, if you don't believe in abortion, then you need to fund and make sure that that mother and that child is going to be taken care of. Now, I was really curious to see, like, what the male legislators, like, how they were going to react to it. But the amendments failed. Womp, womp. And so the ban is probably going to pass on a party line vote. Now, by the way, Georgia has a six-week abortion ban. Now to uh, talk about... The topic of the year, of course, it seems, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, we we did a pretty good breakdown, I think, last week. So I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of some things that have happened since then. And again, this is moving so fluid, so fast. We're taping a little bit earlier than we usually do. So by the time you hear this Tuesday, God help us on what has happened since then. Okay, but here's a few things of note. Number one, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who is the senator from South Carolina, he called on Russians to assassinate Vladimir Putin. And <laughs> Lindsey Graham got yelled at by Democrats and Republicans for that one. Um, but I will say it would be the first time the United States has had a hand in the death of a, of a country's leader. And by the way, Zelensky, who is Ukraine's president, he has reportedly escaped three assassination attempts in just a week, which is just wild. Um, Russians took control of one major city in the Ukraine, um, and then uh, the battle continues to intensify in Kiev. That's the capital city. Uh, Russia also supposedly captured a nuclear power plant in Ukraine, which is kind of scary to think about. Um, Ukraine is inviting foreigners to help fight the Russian military. So, I mean, and by foreigners, I mean, anyone outside of the Ukraine who wants to help, uh, in this war, they are asking and encouraging them to come over. Meanwhile, Russia says war, what war? There is no war. 
Russia has blocked access to Facebook. It has instructed Russian media to refer to what's happening in Ukraine as a military operation, not a war. And by the way, if you, uh, if you're in Russia and you, um, if you like post on social media or if you're in the news and you talk about what's happening in Ukraine, you use words like war, Russia is deeming that fake news and that is punishable now by up to 15 years in prison. Big deal. Uh, and that's one reason why CNN has stopped broadcasting. Uh, and uh, there are others as well, but CNN, you all know, is, is, has stopped broadcasting in Russia. Then the other big thing, again, this is as of right now, but I don't think it's going to change. Uh, the White House says we are not going to enact a no-fly zone in the Ukraine. Um, you probably have heard this phrase a lot over the past couple weeks, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Well, what is that? So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an area over which certain aircraft is not allowed to fly. And if they don't adhere to the no-fly zone, they can be shot down by the military. Right? And so the U.S. has already issued a ban on commercial flights over Ukraine and Belarus, which is helping uh, that country, is helping Russia, and then parts of Western Russia. So Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, he is asking NATO to enact a military no-fly zone over Ukraine. But that would mean that if a Russian plane is in the Ukrainian skies and the United States or another NATO country then has the right to shoot it down, that is war, right? And so... NATO has told Zelensky that they're not going to call for a no-fly zone, and this really pissed him off. And he said, and I quote, all the people who will die starting from this day will also die because of you, because of your weakness, because of your disunity. Now, Zelensky is pushing for Ukraine to become a NATO country. It's also pushing for Ukraine to become a member of the European Union. Uh, we will continue to kind of pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine. I think, you know, with all the sanctions, it has certainly made an impact. But at the end of the day, I don't know if sanctions will really make that big of a difference for Putin. Um, and so, you know, one of the questions is if Putin, ultimately the Russians will, the Russian people would have to dissuade Putin from, um, taking further action, but I just don't think that's going to happen. Okay. One, um, last thing that we're adding in kind of last minute here. So have you ever heard the term inclusive nationalism? <clears throat> right. So remember last week, uh, we were, we showed, or had you listen to a clip from one of the guys who's behind this white nationalism organization, that Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at. Now, he has called for, his, his version of nationalism is a pro-white, pro-white male nationalism. But Steve Bannon, ever the effective communicator that he is, is calling for inclusive nationalism and says, no, no, no. America is a country of multi-ethnicities, multi-races, 
We don't believe in white nationalism. We believe in inclusive nationalism, which means that so long as you are an American, whether you are black, Hispanic, Hindu, Korean, but so long as you are American, we want you to practice and believe in inclusive nationalism. And he believes this is a way for Republicans to stay in power uh, and to check what he feels are Democrats um, using race, using other things as a method of division. Take a listen to what he says. Inclusive nationalism. I, I love that phrase. I, I love that thought. Is that, you know, we've kind of demonized nationalism, and I think it's wrong. And, and I love what you're... Is this something you see the Republican Party talking about, like, hey, we want to be inclusive in our nationalism. I, I, I just love that phrase. The Republican Party as the party? No, you don't. But you see in the MAGA movement, the America First, and place like War Room, and, and we understand, because we study deeply what the left's doing, the thing they fear the most, and a lot of their writers will tell you this, is when people understand that populism and nationalism can be and must be inclusive. So you see them on the Hispanic vote that Trump did so well in 2020, and we're doing better today. You're starting to see it. The Rasmussen poll, look, if the Rasmussen poll is correct, and 33% of African Americans will vote for a generic Republican right now versus a Democrat, American politics changes forever. That, that's the power of the African American community. And we have to be inclusive because nationalism is inclusive. Remember, it cares about one thing. Are you an American citizen? As an American citizen, we understand you have obligations to serve in the military, to pay your taxes, okay? But American citizenship has to have some premium value. And right now it doesn't. Bannon recognizes that uh, black voters are not, black voters don't want to be a monolith. Um, while black voters overwhelmingly vote Democrat, they would be inclined to vote for another party so long as that party isn't seen to them as being racist. And so if you rephrase kind of, you know, this nationalism conversation and making it a pro-America conversation, right? And so if you think about a black voter who is pissed off that the United States is sending billions of dollars to Ukraine and not sending money to a poor black community or even entertaining the notion of reparations, this conversation of inclusive nationalism starts to make more sense for them. And so I think Bannon is, um, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think this is a smart communications approach and something that voters will listen to. And I think it's something in particular black male voters will listen to. Uh, and so we'll see what ends up happening between now in 2024 on this idea of inclusive nationalism. To the last bit of the show, party poopers and party starters. I was trying to think of who to make a party pooper. And I was struggling on this one. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's so many, there's so many people who could be the party pooper, but I'm like, who truly deserves that uh distinction um i don't know i might have to come back to that and let me just go ahead and do the party starters let's get it started in here 
Uh, I'm going to give the party starter to President Biden for the launch of something called Test to Treat. Now, if you, according to this new policy, this new program of his, if you test positive for COVID at a pharmacy or a health clinic, they will automatically go ahead and give you for free the antiviral pill. This is a pill developed by Pfizer. It's called Paxlo- Paxlovid or Paxlovid. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But the gist of this pill, it's 89% effective in preventing hospitalizations uh, for those who are more likely to end up having a severe case of COVID. I think this is smart. I really think it's something we should have done the minute the doggone pill came out. Uh, when you've got hospitals that are overwhelmed, you've got people who can now be treated at home. And again, this goes back to what something Biden said in the State of the Union speech. You know, he effectively said COVID is done in the sense of we are no longer working from home. And he gave companies the out, right? He gave them the cover to say, all right, y'all can come back to the office. And a program like this, again, makes it easier uh, for an individual who's dealing with COVID to just go ahead. I've got COVID. Let me go ahead and get, take this pill uh, and get over it faster. So it's a it's a smart thing that's pro-economy, uh, right, and kind of pro-getting people back to a sense of normalcy. Uh, but if you have been enjoying the work-from-home life, uh, that might not, you might not be happy about that one. <laughs> okay. Party's over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. Uh, so party pooper. All right. Who or what uh, should I make the party pooper? Um, maybe, you know, we've got, I don't know, Keith. I'm like, I'm stuck on this one. <clears throat> I, I have a maybe a little party pooper. Um, during the State of the Union, when they were referring to veterans. Uh-huh. Oh, that Joe chick. Biden. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, that's who booed? Yes. Okay. I, I didn't it was Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, okay, well, the chick from Colorado. I, I think those are party poopers, because come on. I mean, we're yeah. trying to big up veterans. You know what his son's been through. This isn't the time to boo. You could have. Yeah. Afterwards, major remarks. So that, that that's a party pooper. Uh, I would say they are like party bombers, <laughs> not party poopers. Uh, uh, like the wedding crashers. Like yeah. Party crashers. Like right. That. I mean, they just continually. I feel bad for the sensible people in the Republican Party who just can't do anything with them. Right. It's just like it doesn't matter what they do no matter what the topic is, they're just, they're fringe. I mean, they're so far out there. I I wonder like, what are they like in real life? Like when the cameras are off and they're just, you know, if I just ran into them in the grocery store. They're that. They've probably always been the center of attention, you know, like in a, you know how Kanye acts uh, always. I feel like they're those type of always got to be the center. So they might not be, Lame in the sense of like won't talk to you anything, but everything's gonna be dramatic, and they're gonna express their opinion. Like that is exhausting. It's gonna be an issue. Definitely caring energy. Yeah, I, that is exhausting energy. So yes, all right. There, they are our party party bombers. Uh, those two. 
bingo. <laughs> all right, that is it. That's the show. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in to Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. Don't forget to rate, like, subscribe, send it to your friends. If you've got something that you want me to talk about next week, uh, slide into my DM, send me a message. If you know me personally, you can obviously send me a text. Have a wonderful week. And again, happy Women's History Month. (laughs) 